Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today is a Throwback Thursday episode where we talked with Chris uh, Chris Fagan. Uh, Chris and Marty are married, and when they do an adventure, they go big. So from bike tours through Africa to racing sailboats in Alaska, they're quite the dynamic duo, and adventure is a huge part of their lifestyle. Um, and over the winter of 2013 and 2014, that adventurous spirit culminated in a nearly 50-day ski expedition to the South Pole as a couple. Uh, and imp- upon completion, they became the first American married couple and second married couple in history to complete a fully unsupported, unguided, and unassisted ski from the Arctic coast to the South Pole. In fact, there's only been about 100 people in all of history to travel that way. Chris is joining us. She's an amazing storyteller, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. And, you know, if you're out there and you're a married couple or you've got kids, Chris and Marty, by the way, have a, have a child that they had to, you know, figure out the logistics for for this uh, that was in school and all that. You know, this, by so many people's standards, is, quote, impossible. Uh, but it wasn't for them, and they had an amazing experience, and they're going to tell you a little bit about logistically how they got it done and how they planned for it and uh, all that. So I'm really excited about this one. This was one of my favorite conversations just because Chris is so positive about it, makes it sound so doable for the rest of us. So let's jump in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today, we have really another serial entrepreneur, someone who, uh, um, by a lot of people's standards, you know, parent, professional, you ventures over in your life, but you, you and your husband said, no, we're going to keep doing adventures and you've gone, done some crazy stuff. And we're going to talk about two um, specifically, um, the, the expedition, the book that you just wrote, that's not out yet about your trip to the South pole. Then also what you just completed, like just a couple weeks ago, the race to Alaska. Um, Chris Fagan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. So I don't even know where to start. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the book that's coming out, it's called The Expedition, and the subtitle is uh, Two Parents Risk Life and Family in an Extraordinary Quest to the South Pole. Um, That's really intriguing. What in the world do you mean by risking life and family? Because that sounds like a lot to risk, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, so funny you would focus on that in the subtitle because I, I went back and forth as to, you know, if that should be in there. And um, the reality is, you know, you're kind of diving right into the heart of it. But, you know, when we do when we do adventure, we take an, a certain level of risk. And mm-hmm. um, definitely in in this case, you know, it outsiders looking in see it as a you know we're risking our life because we were we were off on this adventure dropped off in the middle of nowhere in in Antarctica the edge of Antarctica just the hus- my husband and I and you know we were going to go you know our plan was to go 7 or 570 miles from the edge of Antarctica to the south pole um, unguided unassisted um, unsupported meaning there was no no professional guide with us there was no you know, air resupply of food or fuel. Um, there was no assistance of, you know, kites or other kinds of wind um, advantages to help you 
you move. Basically, you're just pulling these, you know, uh, 220 pound sleds on your own with this goal. So, yeah, you know, it definitely an outsider looking in, you know, it, it is a risk. And we are parents. My husband and I have a son. And so but it was definitely a, a managed risk. You know, we spent three years preparing for this adventure and felt it was well within our skill level. So when, you know, you're sort of, when you say risking life and family, you know, in the end, when I got back from the trip, you know, that really is what, what we are doing. I have to acknowledge that, but I don't feel like I was risking, um, death. Um, it was something that we just, we, we felt we were ready, ready for the challenge and up for the task. And, um, that's sort of at the heart of, um, heart of the book, how we wrestle with those kind of questions as parents who also want to adventure. Oh, no, I, yeah, I absolutely understand 100% because it's, uh, you know, you, you want to be there and you want to be safe and you want to be able to take care of your kids, but you also, you also want them to look at you and say, I want to be like mom. I want to be like dad. Cause they're doing awesome things with their life. You know, it is a balance. Um, and a lot of people choose one or the other and not try to meet that balance, you know? So I'm, I'm glad you guys are, are actively, um, inspiring your son as well as inspiring tons of other people and being as responsible as you can, uh, going to the South pole, you know, <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. I think a lot of us as parents, you know, we want our children to, to be and act certain ways. And I've learned, um, over time that, you know, the best way is to be the example and, um, that's where our children Mm -hmm. learn. So you're sort of walking the talk kind of thing. Right. And, And now it says, um, says your son was 12 when you did this trip, which is, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it seems like, so you'd already been parents for over a decade. What, what was it that clicked that made you want to do this? You said you planned it for three years. So maybe around when he was eight or nine years old to do this. Were you and your husband really adventurous before having kids? Yes, yes, for sure. Um, gosh, you know, where to answer that question. Um, you know, so my husband and I, I'll give you the sort of a little bit of backstory. My husband and I, um, we're both really interested in mountaineering and we're, we're doing a lot of mountaineering before we met. And so, um, in, in 1998, we both found ourselves on separate independent, um, expeditions to, uh, climb Denali, which is the highest mountain in Alaska at just over 20,000 feet. It's a, it's a major, you know, it's one of the seven summits. Um, it's, it's a major, um, mountaineering expedition. So we both had that interest individually and, you know, long story short, we both sort of were there. We were, I was on an all women's climb. He was on a men's climb and we both were self-guided and had the skill level to do that. And, um, so we met just because our teams were happened to be, you know, summiting or, you know, climbing the mountain at the same time. And we, we basically summited two separate teams within 30 minutes of each other. And we got to know each other on the mountain a little bit and, you know, sort of, uh, sort of a magical spark happened. And three months later, he moved from where he was living in Hawaii at the time to Washington state where I live. And, you know, a year later we were married. So we had that adventurous, (laughs) yeah, we had that adventurous spirit separately and came together. So it wasn't like some couples where one person wants to do things and the other kind of has to be like convinced to come along. 
we already had that seed, you know, in our, in our, in the fabric of our relationship and, and really it's been the fab part of the fabric of our relationship. Now we've been married 20 years. So, you know, from there, we just, we just have been in integrating different types of adventure since we've, since we've been married. Um, and we went sort of went, went from mountaineering to once we had our son, mountaineering sort of took too much time away. So we just said, how can we be in the mountains, uh, enjoy the mountains, you know, quicker. And so we really got into ultra running. And if, if your listeners are not familiar with that, it's really just really endurance, long distance running, anything really over a marathon, you know, a lot of the distances in ultra running are 50 K, which is 31 miles or 50 mile or hundred K or hundred miles. So we sort of just progressed in ultra running and that became our really, um, we immersed our lives into ultra running for over a decade and became really, uh, proficient endurance athletes together. And my son was sort of along for the ride and he, he would, you know, we would bring him out on different kind of excursions. He would go to a lot of the races and it just became something that was part of our family. And, and in between, we started introducing our son to a lot of adventures that he could do. So anywhere from kayaking the Broken Island Group, which is um, near the San Juan Islands here in the uh, Pacific Northwest, starting when he was like two, we'd do this annual trip. Or, you know, once he got older, you know, we would take him uh, it, when he was when he turned seven, we thought, how old does your child have to be to want to take him internationally on a, on an adventure? So we were like, seven, that seems about right. Let's test it out. <laughs> so we, we ended up taking him to um, Tanzania, and we planned this bike around Mount Kilimanjaro, sort of a circumnavigation sort of thing, and then some safariing. So we shipped this tag-along bike with us on the plane, and a tag along bike is like the extension onto your regular mountain bike and connected that on. And he was a trooper and he did great. And, um, we've been doing adventures with him ever since, um, Tanzania, Grand Canyon, hike to the Everest base camp, um, Mount Fuji in Japan, fast packing around, um, some of the great mountains here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so yeah, that's a long answer to your question, but that gives you a little bit of background. So to answer my question, yes, you and your husband were <laughs> adventurous before. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. that's perfect because, you know, I, I did want to know, like, what, what led to this? Because um, maybe maybe that's not the case from your perspective, but from the outside, it seems like an expedition to the South Pole is kind of the cumulative, um, um, all this experience and knowledge going together into something that seems absolutely like uh, uh pushing anyone's boundaries and anyone's comfort zones no matter what kind of previous adventure they've had um was that the case for you guys even after having gosh like you just said so many interesting experiences um what was it like preparing for the south pole right i agree with what you said definitely this was a this was that we were feeling like this was the pinnacle of you know, basically we had this really almost two decades of amazing mountaineering, cold weather mountaineering, as well as endurance running, um, 
training. And so it was sort of marrying those two skill sets of knowing how to be in a really cold, snowy, mountainous environment, although the the, uh, Antarctica is not mountainous, but it's that cold you know, camp, knowing how to camp and take care of yourself in the cold, as well as, you know, endurance. And so at the time when we departed, I was 48, my husband was 50, and we had this 20 years of cumulative experience. And we felt like after the three years of training that, you know, this was in our bandwidth. When the idea first came up, it definitely pushed the boundaries. I mean, my initial reaction was, huge resistance. So it wasn't something that we jumped really? in. Really? So, so was it your husband's idea or someone else's? You know, it was my husband bringing up the idea of, do we think this is possible? Hmm. And not him sort of pushing it, but hey, do we think this is possible? And it really took us a full year of exploring that question to then say, okay, let's let's, um, let's start preparing. So the first year was really researching, um, talking to as many experts as we could about, you know, going on an expedition to the South pole and can we do it by ourselves? We were fully ready to hire, you know, do we want to hire a polar guide or do we think we're capable of doing this ourselves? and what skills do we need to improve upon in order to be safe and do this on our own? So that was a whole array of questions and answers and exploring and research that took place that first year, finding those, you know, there's no book out there that tells you how to go to the South Pole on your own. You know, that doesn't exist. Right. That's, that was my initial thing was thinking, you know, some of these other expeditions you've done, maybe there's not a guidebook, but there's probably more researchable information out there. This is like, there's a handful of people you can talk to. And most of them probably aren't going to do it the way you're doing it, which is with no resupply, you know? Yeah, that's, that's correct. That's, that, that is totally correct. So, you know, so that's, it's a really small group and that's why there's no book and there's been no market for that book really. Well, not until September, 2019, of course. That's, (laughs) that's right. Well, you know, mine, mine is a, you know, an adventure take you along versus like, you know, here's all the steps you need to do to, uh, yeah. But you know, yeah, for sure. You know, but once you, as you, as any kind of niche sport, you know, once you sort of find, you start finding the people who are really can help you with that information, then they can pass you on to other people. So we really sort of wormed our way into getting that information from some, some great experts, um, you know, sort of that have been there that have either guided there or also, done their own expeditions there. And a lot of these people were quite generous in sharing information with us. And, and then we really worked to condition our, you know, it was, it was the mental and physical training as well as getting, you know, sort of the right kit together, the right supplies, the right, you know, custom made sled in Norway, the, um, you know, knowing what, how much weight we would, we could carry, um, how much food per day per person to sustain ourselves. What was enough food? What wasn't enough food? Because, because this sort of journey, you actually walk in knowing you're going to lose weight. There's no way you can carry enough food for the amount of time that you will be there if you're going to go unsupported. So gaining enough, gaining some weight before, for start, before starting, I mean, there was just the, it's an endless list of things that we had to figure out. You know, we had this running list, to-do list, and basically 
every weekend we'd check off some things and then we'd add some more things so that it was like a a list that would never stop growing until sort of the last few months of the preparations before departure. I, I, I mean, I've, I've planned some trips in the past, but nothing like this. And I can only imagine because, you know, even simple trips compared to this are all consuming when it comes to logistics and planning. What did people think around you, maybe family or friends, um, even your son, who was young, but what, what did everyone think? What was the consensus, you think? As we were planning, at the very beginning of the idea, say three years before departure, you know, a lot of, I think there were sort of two camps. You know, we had done a lot of expedition, you know, types of adventures before, so it wasn't super surprising but there was there was definitely two camps of the we totally believe in you we're excited about you launching into something exciting and new and then there was the a little bit of worried camp that this seems a little this seems a little out there i don't really understand it completely kind of that sort of you know not against it but definitely as it with anything we don't understand we're kind of we're kind of afraid of those things that we don't understand. And uh, we build stories in our minds about the what ifs that may be a little more extreme than, than the actual truth. And so, yeah, it was sort of people warming to some of those people in that camp warming to the idea over those three years, finding out how much research we're doing, finding out how prepared we're going to be finding out all of our uh, sort of contingency planning that we did uh, understanding that we had a lot of safety measures in place that may not have been obvious. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So definitely a couple camps, people were r- really inspired, but a little concerned at the same time. Yeah. And, and that goes with anything. If someone was just to meet you and they learned what you're doing, they'd probably call you crazy. But what they don't see is the literally two decades worth of adventures and planning and similar type things in a son uh, who has grown up in this environment, it, it, the people that knew you well probably said, probably didn't expect anything less, honestly. Yeah, I think, I think you're right there. You know, I think one of the problems, or, or maybe it's the challenges we had, as adventurers have sometimes is, is that there are people, some people out there that go and do things and take, you know, over the top risk and don't plan. And so then those are the people that um, sometimes we hear about in the news that, you know, that, that can kind of extend to other adventures that, you know, we're not all the same. Right. So that's a great point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because most people's interaction with something like that is probably in a negative light, something they heard on the news, something sensational. And they don't see the literally three, almost a college education's worth of research that went into this. You know what I mean? A three year planning. I mean, that's an adventure in itself. I'm telling you, there was the, the, you're so right. I mean, there's the adventure before the adventure. Mm -hmm. Then there's the actual event that you go on. And then writing the book, I mean, that has been another completely additional adventure that almost, it has taken the same skill set, the endurance and the sort of perseverance and the, you know, research and how to make it all come together. They were just sort of like three three parts of this experience that have almost spanned a decade now from the planning to doing to writing the book and it finally getting out there in the world. So 
Yeah. That is, yeah, that is something that a lot of people that write a book after an experience like this talk about is the, the discipline, the difficulty of having that kind of discipline to sit down because, you know, you're not, it's not active as much. It's not as fun all the time. Not that I'm sure, you know, skiing almost 600 miles across the South Pole isn't fun most of the time, but uh, (laughs) it it does have this level of reward that you, you know, that will be promised to you when you reach the end. So I'm sure it has been um, just this, you know, the trilogy of adventures right there together that all are under this one title called our South Pole Trip. Yeah, it, I, it, it's, it's true, you know, and, and I, building on one thing you just said, I mean, the discipline, there is just something so interesting when I look over the trajectory of the various things that my husband and I have done over the years. And, you know, that's actually a huge theme that also when we talk about where people are in our world today, you know, that instant gratification just is not part of any of of these types of adventures, these types of adventures t- are really all about endurance, mental and physical discipline and hard work. And yeah, a lot of it really is hard. You know, a lot of the South Pole was, you know, isolation from the world and just going out and putting in your time every day. Uh, but the rewards are so, I think, almost equal to the amount of effort put in. I don't know if you've ever done, you know, when you do something really hard, you don't know if you can do it. Then you have this reward that has put you in a place that you never know you knew you could feel that way. So they're kind of these equal opposing efforts. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, I would say it's an investment um, into the future because you 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 know it's like you said, instant gratification usually leaves you feeling a little uh, a little scummy, maybe not as fulfilled as you imagined it would. Um, you know, maybe just sitting down watching TV the rest of the afternoon rather than working on something you know you really do care about. Uh, the, the, the first is easier, but you know, you're not going to feel great afterwards. Um, so it is this investment for the future for sure. And, Mm -hmm. uh, what you've done is, you know, it's, it takes so much more. I'm always so blown away. It takes so much more than just being able to literally ski uh, to do something like this. It's so much more than the physical effort. And so many people, I think that listen to the show, especially they, they think, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not LeBron James or, um, you know, some professional athlete. I don't have this just physical specimen to be able to do some of this stuff. But, you know, when you see the people that do it and they're not professional athletes, they're just, they're professional endurance athletes, which takes more of a mindset than, a, than the physicality of it. I com- Yeah, I completely agree with the mindset part because really the physicality is sort of a price of entry that I do believe most anybody with the right motivation can get there. Um, Like you said, you don't have to, I don't have to be able to, you know, do run at a certain pace, et cetera, but I have to be able, I have to be able to keep going. And so, yeah, I think, I think, you know, if we have that motivation to have this end goal, 
we physically can do it, but so much of the training that we did, and I think that's why ultra running was a great base for us is mental training. It's really, how can I keep going when my body just doesn't feel good and my my legs hurt and I'm really tired and it's raining and I'm getting cold. All of these barriers that really you're safe so you can keep going. You just sort of have, you're training your mind to be able to do things that you, you just might not, you're training your mind to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then, and then believing that if I just keep going, things will eventually get better because they seem to always eventually get better if you just don't stop. Um, unless you need to stop for some, like I said, actual reason that you're, you're going to hurt yourself. But most of the times it's a mental barrier. That's obviously a lesson for life. You know, that's, that's, that's perfect. But I, but I, I did want to ask this, um, you know, you and your husband had a lot of experience with other adventures. Uh, did, did this one at all challenge you in a new way, your marriage? Was there times that were just seemed more extreme than other adventures? Or was it just kind of a continuation of what you already knew about each other? Yeah, you know, with this, with this adventure, it definitely um, it was sort of a continuation, but pushed us deeper into those territories that you may get into on somewhat shorter adventures. And what I mean by that is, you know, the first week or two, we were in familiar territory as far as um, ups and downs and how we both can support each other in that regard. But as you get deeper and deeper into this journey, what was different is that the cumulative effect of every single day getting up and and going out into the challenging environment into the you know whiteouts or low light difficulty in navigating through those kinds of situations um some of the terrain got really difficult we hit the people think it's flat but really the terrain for a, a large part of this route was um this bumpy windblown snow called sestrugi, which is basically kind of frozen waves of snow that you're going through. So it's, it's not flat and it's actually a gradual uphill from the sea to the South pole is actually at 9,000 feet. So it's a gradual uphill, but it's, it's definitely not flat. Um, so the cumulative effect on on you, you physically and mentally starts to carry over to how you feel at the end of each day. So we definitely have seen each other at our lows, but we hit lower lows, I believe, in this journey. Um, harder challenges to keep your mind positive. And I think what was different in this journey as a couple was that we hit those places simultaneously. Sometimes once we got into like past 30 days, 35 days, you know, we really started hitting some, just, it was hard on all levels and that isolation from there's no people, there's no culture, there's nothing sites to look at that are different really, really became the challenge. And so, uh, I don't think we, you know, we never really got angry at each other, but our 
but our stress levels increased where we sort of retreated into ourselves more than our daily normal life or on other expeditions that have been challenging. So we had to sort of work through that uh, a little bit. And, um, you know, definitely we'd have breakdowns. I personally, you know, during those times, there were, you would just hit these places where you just co- collapse into the tent at the end of the day. And I just burst in, burst out crying because it, it's, it was starting to become your stress reliever would be like to talk to your husband or to go out and exercise, but those stress relievers weren't there in this situation. So, um, but that deeper level of sort of exposure and vulnerability in the end brought us even closer because kind of there's nowhere to hide in your 10 by 10 tent at the end of the day. And, and during the day, you're literally just following each other. One of you is leading, one is, is navigating, one's following, and then we switch. And so you're in these isolated in your head. You can't really talk to each other. So those were definitely some of the challenges. Um, yeah, but in the end, in, and being able to get through that together, you know, have that shared intense experience in the end has, has been a positive thing for our relationship. I decided to Google Sastrugi because I've never heard of that. And I, I, I've definitely seen pictures of that and knew that there's a lot of that out there. Um, but I was visualizing just kind of what you're going through as you were talking. And I just, I can't imagine. I really just can't imagine day after day of that with your husband um, not having relief. Like you said, that's a great point. No cultural relief, nothing new, no new faces, no new really every inch is new, but it's all the same at the same time. I mean, where do you go in your head? What did you do? Do you sing? Do you, do you have anything to listen to? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. You know, first we kept, you know, we would keep things really um, quiet. We didn't listen to music. We just wanted to be aware of our environment. But the further, the further we went along on the journey and we got comfortable with the environment. And then we started sort of that repetition started happening. We definitely had um, music and audiobooks with us. So we would listen to that periodically throughout the day because our days really average like nine, 10 hours out there hardworking each day. So we would listen to that. Um, we would, I would, sometimes I would sing because you're just singing to yourself or you're just singing along. Um, and yeah, your mind would wander. And it was very similar to when we were training for ultra running. We would run 10, 15 hours uh, tra- running. And it was a lot of the similar kinds of things you'd listen to. So, and I think the other thing that would happen is to pass the time, you sometimes would just have to remember, you know, why are, why are we doing this again? You know, <laughs> because, because that, that becomes something that you're like, you know, um, I, I really have to remind myself what isn't, What's the motivation behind this? And while I'm describing a lot of this isolation and hard work, you know, just this Antarctica is one of the last wild places on earth that, I mean, the beauty of that kind of barrenness, that otherworldliness is something that few people will ever experience in the world. And it is tremendously beautiful to have that endless horizon, the the sun is up all the time we were there during the summer so it literally is just sort of revolving around your head so it's sunny all the time and so you're just watching your shadow change 
and the simplicity of the environment. You know, there's actually no, there's no wild animals on the interior to be concerned about. There's no polar bears. Those are in the the North Pole. And so you really get to just enjoy, let go of everything that we're used to in living life in a civilized place. This is, there's nothing there. You're carrying everything that you need. And, and so anyway, getting back to your question, yes, your mind wanders to all of these things and uh, plenty of time to cover all of them. <laughs> I can only imagine. I bet you thought of just, I can't imagine where your mind would go just knowing it was like a blank canvas, you know, at least other places there is the bounds of familiarity, whether even on a long distance hike, you're, you're on a trail. There's usually other people, there's trees and birds and animals to watch out for. This is literally like walking in a wide open nothingness into, into nothingness for what seems like forever. I'm sure. Yes. You know, that, that added to that mental challenge you know, it's mentally challenging to go out every day, but those conditions added to that. And um, that's when I say you you sort of meet the depths of yourself in this kind of journey because there's nothing else but you, you know, I mean, I'm there with my husband, of course, but for so many of the hours a day, it's, there's nothing, nothing there but you. And, um, and so for sure, you know, your mind wanders back to actually, you know, flashing back to parts of your life and things, which which actually I include in the book. So, you know, the book, my book is more than just like a, the kind of book that would chronicle the, the 48 days, which is what it took us to do this journey. It's so much more about our background, where we came from and how our family and community supported us uh, in this type of journey and how, you know, sort of anything big that you do that supporting building community around you is so important. And so though I would reflect on a lot of those things and all the kids that were following us back in, you know, Seattle and the surrounding area, we live in North Bend, Washington, outside of Seattle. My son at the time was in sixth grade, his entire school was following us. And so I would think about them and not wanting to let them down. And we, we blogged every single day, leaving a voice blog of three minutes. And um, we had a team that was posting that on our website and and then translating it. So these kids were doing a daily check-in on where we were, what we were doing, how were we doing, how were we sounding. And so all of that kept, you know, me motivated and thinking about, you know, what do I want to share with the kids today? We had kids following from various places in the country and the world. Um, we had a, a, a day where we actually did a phone call with the entire school, uh, his school, and they had the gymnasium full and we just did an audio call where kids walked up to the microphone and asked us questions. And that was just so motivating and so exciting. And the screams from 6,000 miles away of that gymnasium lighting up when we said hello from Antarctica, it, you know, those sorts of things really kept us going. I mean, more than anything, that is what kept us going once we sort of got in past that day 30 35 where i just i could visualize these kids opening up that that blog listening to that blog every day that is i yeah that is amazing that would be so cool first of all as a kid second of all as the the child of these two amazing people to say that's my mom and dad that we're all cheering for and also obviously for you guys the motivation is just oh there's 
it's hard to replicate a feeling like that. Yeah. You know, and what was interesting about for my son, um, because the school, they had a bulletin board up showing our location every day. And because they were so immersed in following us, he had this complete support network while we were gone at school, all of his teachers, we had met with all of his teachers, you know, prior to leaving and they had our whole, whole plan of what was going to be happening at home because one of the pieces of that three years of organizing was creating what we called our, you know, sort of, it was the, the support book for, for my son, Keenan. It was this 40 page document of everything to do to support Keenan at our house and, you know, at basketball practice and at band practice. And so how to parent when you're not there uh, you really can't do it. But we built this great team. And one of the things that we did was make sure that he could stay at home in his own environment and ha- do his only his day to day routine as usual. And so we had tremendous support from our families every week to 10 days, a different set of people, his aunts and uncles and different people would come in and live here with him and our dog and just be his support people. And he's an only child, so it became a really cool at-home adventure for him to build these relationships with aunts and uncles from out of town that he hadn't got to spend that kind of intense time with and have their own inside jokes now, years later from that time together. And really at that critical point in his life when, you know, preteen, start to feel your own independence, it was all really tremendous. It turned out. Uh, all, all the worries I had about leaving him and somehow damaging him by being gone for a few months really did not come to fruition. It turned out that he that he really thrived and um, and he made me so proud just the way that he he took on that adventure because because we did the adventure. He sort of was forced to, but he really took it on as his own. It was, you know, an adventure for him. To, to say the least as well. And so, you know, I actually like that point you said, you know, getting it, being able to spend this in more intense time with family that you just, there's no other time in life you really get to do that. You know, I think of some of the best experiences I have with some kind of more distant aunts and uncles or cousins. It's usually like one weekend we had together just uninterrupted. And that is like the whole basis for our whole relationship now. And we feel like we really know each other because of that. I can't imagine, you know, 10 days with people that you just would never get an experience like that with, you know? So that's, that's really cool that you guys were able to do that and keep it familiar for him. You know, the other part of that, which was really, really great was, you know, we felt, felt, I mean, I felt this kind of parental guilt for being gone during key holidays. So the time frame for this type of expedition to the South Pole is during their summer, which would be November through January. And so we left a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. And so start, you know, we have all these Thanksgiving traditions. And so some of our really good friends brought their kids and stayed with, with him and, and they made, you know, new Thanksgiving traditions and had so much fun. And then uh, they had so much fun. They came, they came, but they were the same people who came back for Christmas and they did our same Christmas traditions, you know, uh, we always go and get our tree at this one place and we always get this hot apple cider and, you know, chocolate chip cookies there. And so they just did all of the same things, only they created a new, new versions. And they, they, they told me that was 
actually turned out to be their kids. One of their favorite Christmases ever was the Christmas they got to spend with my son, Keenan. And um, so I just, I love that so much, you know, New Year's. So all of these key kind of time frames, he, yeah, like you said, have etched in his mind. He still references those with these, with these people. And they all came with like a week to 10 days of fun ideas of things to do with Keenan. You know, I think by the end he was getting tired of having so much fun. Like, can I just have some downtime? But you know, <laughs> it, it was just a lot of fun experiences to have with people. Wow. Yeah. He's having a blast. You guys out there having a blast in the middle of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh man. Yeah. Trying to survive. Golly. So, so um, yeah, that is just, that's an interesting spin that we don't always get to talk to with people who, who maybe the both parents don't go on an adventure or the, a lot of adventures, you know, frankly on the show don't have kids yet. Um, yep. Yep. You know, or their kids are adults, so it's not a huge problem. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's really, wow, it really does start to show you what actually is possible when you don't say, oh, we can't do that, um, but say, how could we figure this out? That is just framing the mind differently opens up this entire new world. Exactly. Yep. So did you guys think, uh, did, you know, since, since it was self-guided and there wasn't any resupply, um, and you talked a few times getting towards the end of that trip. Uh, how did that go for you? Did, were you successful in, in planning it and preparing the food and all that? Did it go pretty well? Yes. You know, in this case, in this case, uh, we had estimated that our, our, that are based on every, all these discussions and research, we thought that we would be able to accomplish this journey in about 40 to 45 days. So we thought 40 days, and then we brought five extra days of food. That's 45 days. In the end, it took us 48 days. But we could we could plot out that trajectory well in advance of that 45th day. So we didn't run out of food. We could see that we were just not going quite as fast as we had imagined. What we had imagined was um, that we would cover approximately 15 miles a day. But what turned out to have happened, I think we averaged closer to 13. And um, part of that was we believe we had this belief uh, going in that as we started, you know, going and eating our food and our sled would get lighter, that we would, you know, sort of get faster as we kind of acclimatized to everything. But what happened was around that time when it was getting lighter, the sleds were getting lighter. Uh, we were hitting harder and harder type of terrain, more wideouts that would take a lot longer to navigate through. And our, our pace just wasn't what we thought it would be. So, you know, it was pretty clear that we, you know, by about day 35, you know, that we weren't suddenly going to start going 20 miles a day because the terrain looked, you know, we thought maybe we'll go 15, but we we're already. So we figured out that we just started readjusting the food at least 10 days earlier, taking some of the food calories away, building some more days. So we didn't, we didn't run out of food, but we just had to start having less calories per day. Um, so that, you know, that was, that worked out okay. The other thing that we were told was it would be great to be able to take a rest day about every 10 days. This is what some of the guides told us they tried to plan. But by ten, day 10 of of our expedition, we felt like we weren't, you know, we weren't 
hitting those mile markers yet. And we thought, well, we're not overly tired, so let's just keep going. So we took a rest day at day 21, which we really needed um, just mentally. We needed a break. That day was so reviving for us. And it was a couple days before Christmas. So we decided to, we had brought some special food for Chris to celebrate Christmas. So we decided to celebrate Christmas early and we just spent the whole day sleeping in, you know, eating all this awesome Christmas meals that we had, that we had brought along. And then our friends had, had videotaped these messages to us and we had them on our little iPad, iPod, not Nano. That was the biggest screen we had, like two by two. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, and so we actually, we had these little mis- messages from everybody that we'd been saving. And so we watched all these, me- we were going to just like drip, you know, watch them every few days, but we couldn't, we couldn't, we were gorging ourselves this day. So we just gorged ourselves on all these messages from friends and it just so filled us up to power us on. But unfortunately we would, we would around that day 30, 35, it would have been great to have another rest day, but we chose not to take one because we were really concerned about our food supplies running low and what if some kind of storm or something hits that are, is going to force us to be in the tent. So we kept pushing on. And um, so I, if I was to be able to do it again, I would love to have at least one more rest day. But in our circumstances, I, I probably would have made that same decision. With all the unknowns, yeah, that's probably wise. Um, you know, you you may be forced uh, one one day to stay in the tent, but uh, wow, one rest day, good gracious, at twenty one days, not even, and it's unreal. Just, I mean, twenty one days of doing this, twenty one days of working every day is a pain in the butt. Much less doing what you're doing. That is, man, that is just crazy to me. Just, just, it, but, but you know, you 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 say three days extra, and you guys planned it out. To me, that sounds that sounds like you did a fabulous job planning, because I I wouldn't even know how to start. You know what I'm saying? So with you guys being able to project it and then see and make the adjustment ahead of time, gosh, what what a an achievement in itself to be able to say I planned this. Yeah, thanks for thanks for saying that because that really was the culmination of that three years of planning, research, talking to people, understanding our bodies, understanding nutrition, understanding what we needed to keep us fueled, yet not overload us. I mean, it was really a fine line of trying to understand what you what you could or couldn't bring. And so much of the weight in our sleds was was food and fuel and, you know, try to minimize luxury items and, you know, only a couple different we really only had like two versions of clothes there's for the 48 days uh but you just had various layers you know so yeah there's so much to it that i mean you know from the world of backpacking where you can't have water to wash things or to clean things you there's so much you had to go without and so many ways you had to think differently and give up and um, not going through supply towns gosh that is just that is unreal, unbelievable. And so, what was the feeling when you when you saw the South Pole, or or, or what began to happen? Did you see buildings, or did you see the actual pole? And um, what was that like for you? Right. So at day forty seven, we you know we knew we knew how far away that we were from the pole, and we wondered. 
and we knew there were these buildings there. Uh, I don't know if listeners know, but at the South Pole is the U.S. Uh, research base. Mm-hmm. And there's this big building and other outbuildings and research is done there. And so we knew at some point we were going to see these buildings, but we didn't know how far away it would be. And also it's sort of the terrain is a little bit undulating because you're on a glacier. And so you may not, you know, be seeing directly into the horizon at all times. Mm. So so what happened was on day 47, I'm skiing along and I, I just see this glint uh, sort of reflecting off the horizon that looked different. It, looks, it just looked like a piece of snow far off in the distance, but it was reflecting way too much. And I thought, what is that? That is something different because you're staring at this terrain for so many days. You, you recognize this small difference. And in fact, it was, it was a a little piece of the pole and I was staring at it so hard. I actually was and skiing faster, wanting to get to see what it is. And I, my, my skis kind of clipped on some of this frozen ice, uh, sticking out Sistrugi. I fell over and, uh, you know, sort of stand up yelling at my husband, I see something. And we look hard and we see that it is a building or it's, it's, it's something. And we just start jumping up and down like crazy maniacs, laughing, screaming, smiling. It was the biggest surge of an adrenaline I'd had in, in, you know, in weeks because you could see the finish line and no matter, you knew instantly, no matter what, if our tent blows away, if it burns down, whatever happens, we can, we can scratch our way to the finish because it, we looked at our, turned on our GPS. It was 16 miles away. And so we were just about uh, beyond excitement and, and it really, you realize how much stress you'd been carrying all those days because in an environment like that, you cannot make a mistake. There is no room for error to be safe. That, that was our feeling, at least. There was no room to lose, a, lose an item of gear, blow away in the wind or... You know, every day putting your tent up was like this meticulous, you know, surgery almost to make sure that you clip everything in so it can't get blown away and you you stake it properly, et cetera. And seeing that pole uh, was tremendous. The rest of that day, we had, a, we had about three more hours of skiing until we were going to set up camp. We just skied with abandon. We ski, I skied with such delight and such purpose. And I didn't have to look at my compass anymore because I had something I could just look at because so often on, you know, you're, there's no bearing, there's nothing to take a bearing on in Antarctica. So you're taking a bearing on like a piece of snow sticking up. That's a 15 minute ski away. There's not like a tree or a mountain that you can just go towards. So that was really exciting and awesome. What a, what a, I can't, I mean, I'm just trying to visualize it. What a feeling to be so excited, first of all, to see some crummy, you know, building that's probably drab, you know, on the outside in all honesty, you know, it's just like, there's a, there's something to look at that isn't white and frozen solid. And, and to think, you know, uh, we don't have to ration fuel or worry about, like you said, the tent working correctly or anything. We, we can kind of let go of all that knowing we're this close and then really enjoy the last 15 or so miles um thinking about everything we're about to experience the, seeing the pole itself 
making our way back home and, you know, congratulations from all these people. It had to be just a moment, you know, that's really, really unique, really unique. For You know, it's for sure, uh, it's etched in my mind. It's one of those moments that you're, you know, I can close my eyes and put myself in that moment still easily today. Uh, what what was interesting that emerged that so we ended up camping because we w- we didn't have enough you know that's like a full day ski to get there we had log we ticked off maybe four more miles ish so we had about eleven I think eleven miles left to get to the pole the, the final day and you would think that that adrenaline and excitement would carry over to the next morning and for interestingly for some reason it didn't because I think the gravity of what we had read, what we knew is that 11 miles is a long way in this environment and we cannot let get down our guard because it's so close. And we we put our wind meter and temperature meter out the tent door, you know, out the vestibule to, to measure the temperature that morning. And it gets colder as you get closer to the pole. That's just the wind, how the wind and weather works on that continent. And we put the the temperature gauge out and it and it read 50 below and that included wind chill and and that was the coldest day we'd ever logged it, that we'd measured and the severity of those kind of conditions you know it kind of took away that excitement for it, it dulled it until you know because we're we needed to be really meticulous really careful and there, we had a, you know, a small little miss, my husband had a little mishap that morning where he went out, you know, you go out of the tent to, to go to the bathroom and you have all these layers on and he came back in. We usually take care of going to the bathroom and then we come back in and then we finish packing and then everything's packed up and then you're, and then you're going, you have to time it really well. So you're not standing around and getting cold. And so that morning he went out and, and came back in and um, you know, he had, his layers were kind of all messed up. He's trying to fix them. And, and in that process of kind of getting everything reorganized after using the, the bathroom, um, he forgot to put on one of his, uh, by that time we were wearing multiple hats and hoods and things. And he forgot to put on his really warm balaclava, which is, a covers his entire face. And he had his other things over, but not this really warm balaclava. So by the time we get going, we're all packed up. We're, we have our skis on, snapped in, this whole meticulous process. He realizes he doesn't have his balaclava on and his head is getting cold. And we're just starting off for the day. And this is a critical moment where you just want to start moving and getting warm. You're on the edge of getting cold, but yet he has to now stop, dig in his sled, find a balaclava, take stuff off, take his gloves off, put everything back on. And he and he got really cold. His hands were on the edge of, of of being little frozen clumps. And so we had to set off with this kind of and I'm standing around getting cold. We had to set off being really cold. And so the way you warm yourself up is to keep is to just go faster to try to get that blood moving. But our energy reserves weren't allowing us to kind of hit that that gear that fast gear was kind of gone. So we were hitting our medium gear and it was really hard that entire day to get warmed up. And, and my husband, Marty's hands were really, I had to, you know, they were like little frozen clumps. I had to, we would stop for these little breaks and, 
for five minutes to eat like half a bar and shove it in and keep going. And that day we just decided after one one break, it was too hard. We were too cold. We just need to push on. And so we felt like we were, you know, it was like Antarctica wasn't going to hand us this finish. It was going to be challenged till the very end. So, but once we were a couple miles outside and really could see everything at the pole, you know, we, at some of that, that cold, that cold sort of went away. We stopped and we actually, we put on these giant puffy jackets that we have, which were too big to wear and ski in. They just were too, they, they weren't efficient, but for that last mile, we, we didn't care. We just go slow, finally get warm. And, and that's when all that excitement reemerged in us that here we are, you know, tears in the goggles, we're going to make it. And what we decided to do at that last moment was about a couple hundred yards from the actual finish, we pulled out our sat phone and we decided to call our son and share that exact moment with him. So in Seattle at that time, in North Bend where we live, it was around 10, 11 a.m. And I knew that, and it was a Saturday, so he was home from school. And so we we called him, he was there, and we we got to say, we're at the South Pole, we're at the South, as we're walking to the South Pole, we got to say that and share that moment with him, which really actually was the, that was the perfect moment. I mean, the more you share, the more details you share this, the more epic the story becomes. I had no idea that you did that. Wow. What a, what a moment to share as a family, you know, like you said, 6,000 miles apart. Yeah, it really was. I, and like you said, you know, the moment of getting to your goal is something that ever lives in your mind, but it's really, it was really that all of us getting that goal, we reached this goal, but our son got to share it with us because he, in the end, kind of had, had his own, his own South Pole that he was going through, his own summit, his own, I made it kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's just, uh, I don't know, you have, you do, you do a great job describing it and uh, putting us there. And so I, I appreciate that. And what an experience, a little bit speechless, honestly. Yeah, it was, it was a tremendous experience. And um, I, I feel really um, privileged to have been able to accomplish that with my husband and, and all the great support that we had. And, and then to go on and, and, and write uh, the story and, kind of capture that it was important to me. It was important to me for a few reasons. Most of all, I wanted to write the book for my son because I thought, you know, when you're writing a book, you're thinking about who your audience is. And I thought, you know, if no one ever buys this book, which I, I really hope people buy the book, but if, if, if nothing ever, if nothing else, this is the, this is all the all of the details that he may not have ever even known to ask when he was 12 years old but now he's almost 18 and you know this is this is something that can chronicle a really awesome event in his life too because he's embedded in in the story and so sharing it for him and um you know and I wanted to just write the book because it was a different kind of vantage point than I I love adventure books my shelf is full of every kind of adventure book you can imagine. And I love even sports I don't necessarily participate in. I love those adventures. And so much of those adventures don't 
tell, I, I feel a lot of times it's really just focused on the adventure and not enough about, uh, and not, not about the characters. Um, and I really wanted to present a book where you get to know the character of the people beyond just their adventure. How are they in life? How do they treat each other? What are their values? How did they get to be these kinds of people? How will they integrate this adventure into their life? How does it permeate the values of their marriage and the way they raise their children? And how does it affect their community? And how do they want to extend it into the fabric of, you know, who they are in day-to-day life? You know, I wanted to really have the characters come alive, the people that were, were helping us are part of the book. And I'm really proud of how it came out in that way. That's uh, that's wonderful. It sounds it sounds like this podcast in book form because that's that's what we try to do here is, um, you know, who are these people that do these things and why? And the more you learn about them, and usually the more you get to know lots of them, the more you realize in a lot of ways they're just normal people. Um, you know, they're just people making it through life, raising children paying mortgages, uh, working, you know, at a job they may or may not like. And, and then they just get this, this rush of adventure through them or, or it's been in them all along and they decide to do something about it and, uh, their life is never the same, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I like that idea of, you know, writing a book for, we, we referenced it earlier in our conversation, but most people will not want to read this book because they too would like to go to the South Pole. And do- <laughs> right, right. Maybe, <laughs> but, maybe one or two. <laughs> but that's yeah, it. but but I do believe that that everyone everyone can read this book and relate um, to the humanity and the human desire to to strive for something that maybe feels beyond your reach and. And maybe access a little more of the adventurous spirit that really dwells in all of us. And and what can they do to break through to feel fully alive in what is important to them and in their life? And how can they access family and community? You know, these are the themes that I run through the book that I believe are really accessible, as you said, to to anybody. You know, you do not have to be an extreme adventure person, um, to, to, to get something from this book. And, and, and in addition, it's really fun to go on adventures and live through the eyes of somebody else and not have to go on that adventure and feel like you really understand Antarctica and all, you you know, the South pole and, and just this different environment and, a place that maybe you've never, you know, I never understood a lot about it, about Antarctica until that that time I was researching, you know, I never understood it. I never knew that the the continent is a, is one and a half times the size of the United States. I had no idea. You see it at the bottom of the globe that spins in your bedroom when you're a kid and you have no idea how big that landmass is, you know, just so many things um, that I think people can learn about an environment and also about and in the expedition, what is that all about and about themselves in relation to these themes? That's well, I'm, I'm really excited um, for when it comes out and for folks to be able to check it out. Uh, how can people find the book? The book will be available uh, everywhere they can buy books um, Ju- uh, September 3rd, 2019. 
so they can find it on, you know, it's already listed for pre-order on all any kind of place they might buy online as far as Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, and other types of bookstores that are major online uh, sellers like Powell's and um, those sorts of places. Powell's is in Portland, but they ship world, you know, uh, all around the United States. So yeah, it's out there for pre-order already. And then um, it'll be hopefully in their local bookstores. Libraries will hopefully be carrying it as well. Uh, I have a new author website that will be launching hopefully in the next week or two. So by the time they hear this, it should be up. And that's chrisfagan.net. Uh, and that will have all the information about the book and the adventure, the South Pole adventure, and lots of other adventures that my husband and I have and my son have taken. But I, and I and I know that this isn't you know obviously just like before it wasn't the first experience this isn't your last experience either. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, but I would love just a quick you know what's going on for you guys, you and your husband and your son in the future. I know you just got done with the the race to Alaska that um, didn't go as planned. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about that? Sure, I can give you like a quick synopsis of the so the race to Alaska. So the Race to Alaska is a an event that um, anybody can enter with a non-motorized craft. And so you will see anything from, you know, monohulls, catarans, trimarans, these are sort of big sailing boats, to kayaks and rowboats and paddle boards, stand-up paddle boards. Anything that can is a paddle is a watercraft. And so we decided to enter with a, we wanted to do a, have a unique kind of vessel. And so we decided to enter it with a, a Hawaiian outrigger sailing canoe. And if you're not familiar with the, what that might be like, it's a, imagine a three man canoe. So it's, it's a deep hold canoe that's 30 feet long. And then the outrigger part has these two trampolines that sort of like a mini uh, a mini uh, catamaran with, with floating amas on the outside and a sail. So it could sail and it could be paddled. And the reason we thought this would be a fun vessel was because you're, you're going 750 miles through the inside passage, which is uh, starting from Port Townsend, Washington, up through the inside passage and ending in Ketchikan, Alaska. And in, in that span, it's known to have a lot of wind, but also have a lot of flat water. And so we thought this would be an interesting combination to be able to paddle when there's no wind and sail when there was wind. And so we ended up purchasing this boat used from a man who builds these canoes um, in Hawaii called Nick Beck. And he is sort of legendary in Hawaii for building these boats. Uh, they're called Holopuni canoes. There's only about 50 that exist in the world. He's an ex-school teacher turned um, canoe builder, and he's 81 years old now. And he's had a lot of great adventures uh, going from Hawaiian Island to Hawaiian Island on these boats. And so we thought it would be a great choice. So long story short, we enter the the rate. We we you know we buy the boat. We train with it for about six months. And then we uh, we set off on this journey, and it's a race, but it's also an adventure. And we we found out pretty quickly that this boat 
couldn't really compete with those big boy sailboats that could could go 20, 30 knots easily, you know, in, in good wind. This boat really is more of a downwind boat, and um, which meant we had to attack a lot more, and we couldn't go straight into the wind. So it was a great adventure of being part of the inside passage, and we were trying to sleep on the boat as much as possible while we're moving. Uh, we would anchor at, at times and, and get real sleep and sleep right on the boat, uh, anchor in these beautiful bays. We saw all kinds of beautiful wildlife, uh, breaching humpback whales. This one day, one breached 11 times in front of us, just stunning. Uh, porpoises swimming next to us, pristine waters. And uh, so what happened for us is we had a great, a great trip um, up until day 10. And we were in that final push. And we had finally a great prediction of wind that would be a, a, a a southerly wind, which was our perfect type of wind for this boat. And so we decided to, we had a, a chance to go either inside or outside, um, inside the passage or outside more towards open seas uh, in that last push to catch the can. And we made the decision to go outside because there was better wind. The forecast was in our favor. And um, so, you know, and it was a route that a lot of other boats have gone on. So it wasn't something that, you know, people don't, go on. What what turned out for us was the seas, the wind got, uh, the seas got bigger, the wind got stronger than had been predicted. And we found ourselves, you know, in seas that were a little more chaotic in, instead of more like stormy seas. So instead of swells and sort of, and sort of swells that you kind of go in and out of, some of the waves started breaking and in a chaotic way. And the boat is very, was we weren't scared the boat wasn't going to be able to handle these conditions. But what was happening was that, well, what did happen was in, in one instance, a really big over seven foot wave came from behind. And at the time my husband was in the, in the stern of the boat steering. And like a kayak, you're wearing a spray skirt that goes around the hole that you're sitting in to keep water out. But what happened was this this big wave came over and hit unexpectedly, knocked my husband's glasses off, punched through the spray skirt, filled the canoe halfway full of water. Um, and and then we we needed to pump it out. So I, I take the spray skirt off, the cover off the middle, the middle area because we were sitting up on the tramp areas with the other teammate and I and so I start pumping like a wild crazy woman trying to get the water out and I was getting making some good headway but some these waves were coming now from the side and and they came through two more waves I think filled within five minutes two more waves filled the boat to the gunnels so so now the boat is the middle part is underwater the tramps are above water and there's no way to pump that out when water is still is just flowing in. And so we were unfortunately had to make the, the call. It was pretty clear right away that um, we aren't going to be able to to get this water out of this boat and be able to sail and paddle safely. If we were within if, if we were within close to being near land, we would have been able to get it on land and get the water out. But we were miles from shore, so that wasn't going to be possible. 
So we instantly hit, we, we were carrying a spot um, tracker that you can hit an SOS button, which we did hit. Immediately we all decided we, that's what we have to do. And, um, and then we, and then we raided for rescue. Um, and ultimately what happened was it was two hours until the Canadian um, Coast Guard arrived and, and took us to safety. So I don't know if that was the short or long version, but yeah, that uh, that gives you the details. And uh, uh, the good news the good news about that is that we were all safe, um, and we we thought we were going to lose our boat, but as it turned out, uh, a day later we were able to mount a small little group of, of people to go out, and we found found our boat drifting towards Ketchikan, and were able to tow it in and rescue it, and. Um, and we and all of our all of our belongings, we did not lose anything except I think our map bag and a water bottle. So it was a kind of a happy ending in that regard. No adventure, big or small, is guaranteed to go smoothly. And, uh, you know, probably doesn't seem like nearly as big of a challenge as the South Pole, but you just never know what's going to happen out there. You know, you know, you know, that's that's so that's so true. And. You know, we've done a lot of post post adventure analysis, and because you know, when something does go sideways, you want to think about what part did I play in that? It would, could I have done something differently? And ultimately, we have all said, you know, <clears throat> I would probably make that same decision. I would probably still go outside. The weather changed; that was out of our control. But one thing that was within our control was that. You know, we were pretty tired going into that day and that evening and probably would have made sense for us to go ahead and pull over, get a little more sleep and then do that, make that decision so that if you hit any kind of circumstances that were beyond your control, you know, you would have a little more. You, you just have all your senses about you and maybe make quicker decisions, maybe would have noticed those seas rising quicker. You know, these are all things you never know. Uh, but that's the one thing that I can, I, I will take sort of responsibility that, um, you know, when we're tired, that can sort of add to those kind of cascading events. Um, but, you know, honestly, we thought that line that, you know, that line that you never want to cross was a lot further than it turned out to be in those kind of seas. And um, when we look at a lot of other boats that went through you know, they were experiencing a lot of challenges as well, but they just weren't as exposed as our boat. So we learned a lot. And had I been in a younger stage of my life, I, I would have maybe thought about this adventure as, well, we didn't reach the goal and somehow feel that it didn't, that it wasn't a worthy adventure or that I was really let down. But I think in this case, and maybe with, maturity comes really the positive side of this was a grand adventure and and you don't ever set out an adventure knowing what the ending is going to be and it just reminded me of that of that reason of loving adventure and getting lessons that maybe you never thought you were going to get and that's the beauty of adventure is being open to what is going to happen and being as safe as you can while doing it and you know that's what i take away from this it's it was a grand adventure and i and it and it will still live in my heart as something that i'm really proud and happy that we did
that's what adventure is just a lot of a lot of unexpected things happen usually <laughs> and so um, I'm, I'm I'm glad that something went wrong on this one and not on the the South Pole expedition because uh, a lot less safety net there to say the least. <laughs> right. So, well, great. Well, well, Chris, I, I want to thank you again for uh, joining us today, and thank you for um, writing the book and doing this experience and talking about it. Uh, this was fantastic, and uh, I wish you and the family the best of luck in your future endeavors, and who knows, you, you keep doing this, we're going to have to have you on again. Right. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure chatting with you today. It was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Well, thank you for making it happen, and uh, we look forward to getting it out, and we'll let you know when it does. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, you too. All right, bye. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.